Welcome to the Teacher's Cup of Coffee. It's great to be with you today. You know, I'm sure you're like me. You're wishing we could be back at school, but just not in the cards for us this year. Hoping for the best for next year, of course. But also living in this quarantine time, trying to figure out how do I keep growing as an educator? How do I keep growing as a human being, frankly? And, you know, a few weeks ago, I realized that a lot of podcasts now we're turning to how do we teach online, how can we do all of the things we need to do to keep educating our students. And those podcasts have been very important. But it was almost a month ago at this point that I sort of made a decision with the teacher's cup of coffee that I thought what I wanted to do with this quarantine time is really do a deep dive um, into a topic that has interested me my whole life, certainly impacted all of us our whole lives. And and that is racism. And I was happy to be part of a book study this school year um, on a book called White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. And I'll be honest, I was behind in the reading. I had missed the meetings. But I knew that this book was something I was going to really enjoy and, more importantly, something I was really going to learn from. So I decided that during this quarantine, I would deep dive this book and little did I know how much of an impact it would have. You know, I have a favorite book about the topic of racism, which is Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And I now have to say I have two favorite books. It's Coates's book and Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility. And I've read it in its entirety. And so, you know, I started taking notes on it and I thought, what a great time to sort of organize my thoughts and use the teacher's cup of coffee to both hopefully push forward thinking, uh, give sort of a book report on what I think is an amazing book, and sort of do a real deep dive to make me ideally uh, more self-reflective and better educator. And then all of a sudden, and I know all of a sudden is a funny way to say it because racism is never all of a sudden, but then we had Ahmaud Arbery, then we had Central Park situation, then we had most recently George Floyd. And suddenly it wasn't just me deep diving and self-reflecting on racism in a time where we have time to do these kind of things. Suddenly the nation once again is deep diving this issue. And I hate to say it, but I always feel like a tourist in these moments. I feel like I can watch the news, I can read all the articles, I can see what's going on. And it's, you know, it's the way I would travel to France, you know? I would dive in, I would walk through the streets of Paris, I would go to the Louvre, I would try to learn all I could about France and Paris and the culture and the people. And then I would leave, and I would be right back in my own world. And that's how I often feel in these times of heightened sort of 
full societal heightened awareness around racism is I feel like I can read about it, I can talk about it, I can watch about it, and then I can just come back to my normal world and my normal world still exists. And that makes me so sad in so many ways and so frustrated and maybe the best word is it really just makes me lost. Um, so then I started thinking, well, is this the time to do this? With all that's going on, is it the time for me to be doing sort of a book report on this first book and then another one on the Ta-Nehisi Coates one? Um, but then as I started to think that way, I thought, but that makes me, that makes it sound like these are isolated incidents, right? And these aren't isolated incidents. These have been happening for our, the entire history of our nation, right? So, of course, this is a good time for me personally, and ideally, if you take this journey with me, hopefully you'll find some value in it to sort of deep dive racism, what it is, where it comes from, how it impacts all of us. And, you know, as a white person, I know I need to speak out. I need to learn. I need to think. And, you know, hopefully if I'm doing all of these things, it will equal action. Um, and also as a white man, especially, it's good for me to have to think and have to speak publicly, you know, um, by putting this out there on iTunes and in the Teacher's Cup of Coffee feed, you know, uh, this isn't just me talking to my friends, which is easy. This is me talking to whoever who decides to listen. And therefore, I can't hide. I have to really speak and learn and ideally get better as a human being as I sort of deep dive and self-reflect. As always, we're brought to you by NPT Education. We're very proud. We've been doing a lot of work recently leading in a new frontier, the YouTube video series. NPT uh, 3 with Pete is also tackling racism this week. And check us out, NPTEducation.com. We'd love to have you check us out, see the different content we're putting out there. Uh, but what I'm going to get into today, it's sort of going to be part book report, part self-reflection. And the book report is going to be on the first few chapters of White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. It says right on the front cover why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism. Robin D'Angelo, she earned a PhD in multicultural education from the University of Washington in Seattle in 2004. She was a tenured professor at Westfield State University here in our backyard in Massachusetts. And she's currently an associate professor of education at the University of Washington in Seattle. She also holds two honorary doctoral degrees. Her area of research is whiteness studies and critical, critical discourse analysis and she herself is white as well. So today I'm gonna to take us through the foreword of the book into the author's notes, into the introduction and through chapter two. And I'm gonna often direct quote the book and I'll make sure I say so when I'm doing that. Um, and then I'm also gonna be inserting my own thoughts throughout my discussion. Uh, and again, I'm hoping that by listening to what this book gives us, because this book is amazing. When I say this book has changed how I look at race, it has completely changed how I look at race. Every chapter, I almost had to read every line twice because I couldn't believe how mind-blowing this new perspective was. And it made me feel so archaic in how I was thinking about race just months ago before I read this book. Uh, there's only one thing I want to say from the foreword. Um, 
but it's an old famous quote. It says, the loveliest trick of the devil is to persuade you that he does not exist. And that really was foreshadowing for what a lot of what this book is about, is that whiteness tries to make it seem, whiteness has made it seem like that does not exist. And so we need to remember, and, and we'll get into it much deeper, obviously. Um, as far as from the author's note, here we are in America, where all people are quote-unquote created equal. But we were founded, as D'Angelo says, we were founded on the genocide of indigenous people. We were built on the labor of kidnapped and enslaved Africans. We did not let any woman vote until 1920. And we did not let any black woman vote until 1965. But here we are in America, where all people are created equal. And through civil rights, all progress has come through what D'Angelo terms identity politics. And when a group gets strong in their identity politics, they band together and they enact change. And D'Angelo's argument is that the next progress needs to come through white identity. Whites, we are not often asked to think about ourselves in racial terms. Go back to the trick of the devil. The loveliest trick of the devil is to persuade you that he does not exist. Well, that's how white people have sort of been able to live. It's as if it's as if we don't have a race. It's as if we're just just we just are and others have a race. And in fact, this problem is so embedded that it's often that people of color understand white consciousness better than white people do. They understand the white experience better than actually white people do because as white people, we're not really taught to see or understand our whiteness. Just as a note, in this book, D'Angelo refers to two groups, people of color, quote unquote, people of color, and quote unquote, white. And she says these are two, quote, socially recognized divisions of the racial hierarchy. So getting into the introduction, what is white fragility? That's really what the introduction starts to put lay out for us, is what is this, what does this term white fragility mean? Well, white people are the beneficiaries of a society that is frankly deeply separated and it's unequal. And as white people, we feel protected against racial stress and we actually almost start to feel like we deserve our advantages. Uh, the, how does she term it? A uh, quote, deeply internalized sense of superiority, end quote, is bred within us. And we either don't recognize this or we don't acknowledge it. And in fact, it gets worse. We learn to ignore our own whiteness, instead thinking that race is something other than us. So if we think about, oh, we need to have a talk about race, we don't think we're going to talk about our race as white people. We think we're going to talk about the race of others and what their race means. We don't think of it as we have a race and what does our race means. If anything pertains to us, in fact, if we're in a conversation and we think if anything pertains to us racially, we actually feel targeted and accused of not being good and not being moral. So if we're in a conversation around race and something comes at us about our whiteness and what it means to us in that moment, we get defensive. We, we feel like we're being targeted. We feel, you know, we sort of feel like you're saying I'm not a good person when, when really all that might be being said is that like, we're white and that is a race and that does have an impact on our lives. And so frankly, the overall system creates many white people that are unable to discuss race, unable to acknowledge our own advantage, 
unable to overcome strong emotions when there's even a small accusation that race or racism plays a role in something. Again, like we're taught to get defensive. So we're actually socialized that if someone attacks us about our race, that we should get very defensive against that attack. And that defensiveness where we can't even talk about our race or talk about the impact of our race, that defensiveness, that's white fragility. And that's that white fragility is how we avoid talking about race because we feel as soon as we get targeted, we're being called a bad person and we shut down the conversation. We shut down our thinking. We shut down our growth. And it's the reason why a lot of people of color won't even go into racial conversations with us because frankly and rightfully so they're exhausted because they know as soon as they challenge us back, this white fragility will stand up and we'll sort of shut down from everything that's going on. So, quote, white fragility is not weakness. In fact, it is a powerful means of white racial control and it is the protection of white advantage. So, a couple things that are in this race, this white fragility. First, racism is bad and immoral. If someone accuses me of racism, I will get mad and upset. So that's something that we've sort of, as a society, built up to maintain like the dominance of whiteness, is that racism is bad, and if you accuse me of it at all, I'm going to get really upset at you. And therefore, don't. And if you do, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I'm going to shut down. I'm going to make the conversation about me, not about the impact that maybe my racist moment or act had. Second one, we as white people think socialization happens to others, not to us. There's no way that we, like we, we think, like there's no way that we're complicit in racism. And if you say I am, I will get mad and upset again. So, you know, socialization is a thing. And us being white and living in America means we have been socialized in many ways to see and more importantly to experience the world in a certain way. And if, but, but we don't think so. That's the trick. We don't think that. We think other people are socialized. We think that we're individuals. We have been taught to see everybody equally and there's been no impact of socialization on me because I was raised to see everyone the same, you know, and that's just not the case. But again, we get mad, we get upset, we get defensive, and that's our white fragility shutting down conversation again. And another part of white fragility is racism. You know, we consider it, as D'Angelo says, quote, discrete acts of hatred committed by individual people rather than a complex, interconnected system, end quote. If you say I'm being racist when I'm not committing concrete acts against people of color, I'm going to get mad and upset. So it's like we've built up what racism is in this white society, that racism is when you're doing something really bad based on hatred to people of color. And that's not how D'Angelo, and we'll talk more about this in a later chapter, defines racism. That's not how it's defined. But therefore, if you accuse us of any racism, we are going to get mad, frustrated, and shut it down. I'll be honest, I did not understand this. I did not understand this for a very long time. I saw a TED talk about a year ago, which started to change my thinking a little bit on this one. And 
what the I forget the guy. I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to give credit here. But what the guy said is too often in America, we talk about racism as if you haven't, as if you have it or you don't have it. So it's like if do you, you either have cancer or you don't have cancer, and we're either racist or not racist. And he said that's not how it works. He says racism can be little moments where it comes out and we have it. And it can be other moments where we don't have it. And D'Angelo wouldn't necessarily agree with how he defines it, but it did impact me. He said, sometimes we got to treat it more like plaque on our teeth. Like, hey man, you got a little, got a little plaque on your tooth there. Like, let's get it off. And hey, that was a little racist. Doesn't mean you're a bad person. Doesn't mean you're overall, you know, just a disaster of a human being. Just means that was a little racist. Wanted to point it out, make sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. And so in white fragility, again, all of this put together leads to the systematic racism that exists. So white fragility is all the ways we get defensive rather than open to talking about race and discussing it. And as D'Angelo says, quote, our defensiveness maintains the status quo, end quote. So... What do we need to do? Well, we as white people must, quote, accept that racism is unavoidable and that it is impossible to completely escape having developed problematic racial assumptions and behaviors. I'm going to read that again. It is impossible to completely escape having developed problematic racial assumptions and behaviors. I would have never thought that way either. I would have always thought that you could avoid it. And it's just so wrong. It's just so wrong. And th this, is, this is what's so important about this book is I'm 41 years into a lot of thinking on this. And this, just, this book just overnight made me realize we can't escape racism because we've misdefined it. And as we better define it, we're going to see that we've all been socialized in a larger racist society. And therefore, it impacts us. It impacts us to many varying degrees. But we can't escape that it is going to impact us. You know, and another thing that came up in the introduction was uh, D'Angelo points out that from the perspective of people of color, white progressives can be the worst. Because instead of putting energy into continually learning, building relationships with people of color, engaging in self-awareness, etc., all that stuff, you know, many white progressives just put their energy into wanting to show everybody how much they get it how much they understand it, how much it's not them. You know, and I, I'm probably, I was probably, I probably was guilty of this at some times where, you know, I've lived I, not a very diverse existence, but I've lived a pretty diverse existence as a human being at many different, in many different parts of my life, I've been very connected to people from many different backgrounds, people of color, of and and I, I sometimes looking back after reading this book, it's like how much was I growing in those moments or in that time period? And how much was I trying to prove that I didn't need to grow? Uh, and that's disappointing for me. That was, that hurts. Um, and, you know, my job now after understanding this deeper is to get into full on growing mode, continual continual growth. So to sum up the introduction, the goal of this book is to show that white fragility is built and maintained 
in order to hold racism in place. And that is really hard to overcome. So let's go to chapter one. The challenges, the chapter one is mainly about the challenges of talking to white people about racism. Why is it so hard to talk to white people about racism? All right, this starts with this difference between socialization and individualism, okay? And here in America, we like to think, especially when we're white, that we are individuals. We are, in, we are not socialized. We are individuals who make individual decisions. And that is how we're raised to feel as white people, that we do not have universally human experiences. There's no such thing. My experience, my experience is that of a white man in a society built for my success. So for me to say socialization has had nothing to do with who I am or who I've become, that's crazy. I, I'm, I'm in the demographic the system's built for, you know, but we're not taught to think this way. We're taught to think that we have, we're taught to think we have the same experience as others. I'm, I'm sorry, we're taught to, ex to think we don't have the same experience as others and that we have worked for our hard-earned advantages. I'm taught to think I'm, I am who I am today because of all my hard work. It has nothing to do with any society that was built for me or any socialization that gave me advantages. And as a white person, frankly, we're not taught to see ourselves racially. You know, race is someone else. If, we, if, we're, if we're talking about race, we're talking about someone else. We're not talking about me, I'm white. That's not, it's, it's not really seen as a race. Race is someone else's problem. So that's the first big step that D'Angelo gives us, is we need to see ourselves racially and understand that my race, yes, my whiteness, matters in every moment of my existence. So the first thing we must do to overcome white fragility, we must first name our race. I am a white man. That's a big step. Not just I'm a man, not just I'm this, not just I'm American. I am a white American man. I have a race. And that race has played a big role in my experiences. So when we feel that racism is defined as, quote, intentional acts of racial discrimination committed by immoral individuals, we make it, end quote, we make it so it's not our problem. So if we think, oh, what is racism? Racism is bad acts committed by bad people. And that's not me. So, so racism's got nothing to do with me. And that couldn't be further from the truth. You know, we, we love to hide behind these sayings, like I was taught to treat everyone the same, or respect begins at home. You know, that's one of my favorites. Respect begins at home, and this just ends our self-reflection. Again, this is us not understanding socialization. We need to understand socialization. In order to overcome white fragility, we must acknowledge that we have been socialized as white people in a white-dominated society. This also includes acknowledging that we are not objective and unique. Not objective because we have been socialized as white and not unique because our whiteness is common to many. Our whiteness is common to many. We are not unique in that. We are white and that is common to a lot of people and that is part of how we've been raised and socialized. Again, individualism is so important in America. It claims that there are no barriers to our success other than our individual character. Anyone can succeed 
if they just do it themselves. It claims that race and class and gender and all these other things don't impact our life chances. It's the opposite of socialization. So it's like America was built on this idea of individualism. But really, the, the society that was built on this idea of individualism was set up so that white people would be the ones that would succeed by far the most. And it would make white people feel as it was because they were this individual and that it's their, they're the reason they're so successful. And it would hide this fact that socialization is playing a major, major part of it. And we want to feel that our individualism is the only factor in our success, but clearly it is not. We need to remember the white experience has commonalities for all the people experiencing it. We need to get away from thinking that individualism is all that exists. We have to overcome white fragility by acknowledging our shared experience. I can't just say, I have had X experience. I need to say, I am white and I have had X experience. Seeing this larger picture of being white and the role or the impact it's had on our experience will help us understand racism far more deeply. So if we put all the growing discussed in this first chapter uh, together, if, or if we do all of this growing, we, we might start to feel uncomfortable because we start to sort of unsettle the racial status quo. We start to realize that like it, it wasn't just me that helped myself be so successful it was sort of a racist society that gave me an advantage as well and this becomes uncomfortable for me and this becomes uncomfortable for a lot of white people but we need to live in this discomfort we can't hide from it we, and we need a lot of white people to feel this discomfort. You know, there's been, I've seen so many friends on Facebook recently putting out there how uncomfortable they are with all that's going on and how uncomfortable they feel with their privilege and how uncomfortable they feel. And that is so important if we listen to D'Angelo is that feeling that discomfort is really important because that acknowledges that we're understanding what role our whiteness plays in our experience. And we need to understand our whiteness in order to overcome white fragility. So in order to talk about race, we need to accept and more importantly, understand our white experience and all that it includes. I'll tell you, when I was finished with chapter one, I was hooked because I had never thought that way. I had never realized how important my own whiteness has been to my own experience. And when I acknowledge and understand how important it's been, I do get uncomfortable. I do feel like unfairly rewarded. But I, but at least I'm seeing it now. At least, you know, and I read Peggy McIntosh 10, 15 years ago in White Privilege. So I've, I've seen and understood white privilege for a long time. But I think D'Angelo has made me respect it at a deeper level. Not just in a moment to moment. What was my white privilege in that moment? What was my white privilege in that moment? That Again, that was like tourism. Like I could drop in and acknowledge my white privilege in this moment or in this moment. And then I could go back to my own existence. 
Uh, and that was important. That work, that work on white privilege was so important. But D'Angelo has pushed it further for me and made me realize it's not a moment thing. It's I'm always white. I'm always white in every moment. And it impacts every moment. And I need to own my whiteness, understand my whiteness. So that brings us to chapter two. And this one was heavy. This is all about racism and white supremacy. Couldn't even believe it that I'd be reading about racism and white supremacy. And, and it was only in chapter two, nonetheless. Um, this chapter really, really blew my mind. Um, it just forced me to totally change my understanding of both concepts, racism and white supremacy. It took me so much deeper into my understanding of those topics. So let's jump into it. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, great quote that was in the D'Angelo book. Race is the child of racism, not the father. Race is the child of racism, not the father. Could do a whole podcast just on that quote. D'Angelo talks about how race is a social concept, not a biological one. Society was organized around racial lines, and it is, on purpose, enduring in this commitment. And because race is a social construction, who gets included in different categories changes over time. And this is so interesting in America that D'Angelo points out that, you know, when people first started coming to America, you know, like Irish or Italians, they, they were seen as other and there was, there was actually racism against Irish and racism against Italians. And they had to overcome a lot of things. But eventually, those groups were accepted. And they became part of, quote unquote, white. You know, and, and so that's just to show that, you know, racism, I'm sorry, race is a social construction. It, it, it changes over time. And it can change over time. And eventually in America, quote, if we look white, we are treated as white in society at large, end quote. So even if you're of mixed descent, but you look white, then in the society at large, you're going to be treated as white. Uh, you know, being poor is never easy, of course. But in America, if you are poor and white, D'Angelo would say it's still a little better in the larger context because you're still of the race that the system is built for. So then it got really interesting. We get in, D'Angelo goes into the differentiation between prejudice, discrimination, and racism. Prejudice, discrimination, and racism. Prejudice, prejudice, quote, prejud what is prejudice? All right, sorry. What is prejudice? Let me quote her. Prejudgment based about another person, prejudgment about another person based on the social groups to which that person belongs, end quote. So I'll say it again. Prejudgment about another person based on the social groups to which that person belongs. And according to D'Angelo, all humans have prejudice. It is unavoidable. We all, no matter what color we are, we, we see people and we immediately will have some opinions, some feelings, some thoughts about that person based on what social category we can put them in. What color are they? What are they wearing? Do they look rich or poor? All these different things lead to some prejudice and we can't avoid it. It's unavoidable. That's prejudice. All right, what is discrimination? Discrimination, according to D'Angelo, is, quote, action based on prejudice, including ignoring, exclusion, threats, ridicule, slander, and violence, unquote, end quote. So according to D'Angelo, discrimination is action.
action based on prejudice. So most people do feel some level of discomfort or sort of heightened self-consciousness when they're around certain groups of people, mainly because, you know, we aren't often around this group of people and we've been absorbing information about them and most of it's wrong information, of course. But even when we're around other groups of people and we act a little differently, that's discrimination. We've changed our behavior based on prejudice. We've changed our behavior based on prejudice. Now what we're doing is not just prejudice, because we've changed our behavior, now it's discrimination. And D'Angelo argues this too is unavoidable. We can't help but in some moments discriminate. Even if that just meant me as a white man walks into an auditorium um, and there's 500 people of color in the auditorium and I'm the only white person and this is a new experience for me and I just act a little bit differently because of it. Then I am discriminating because I am acting based on my prejudice. So the last one, the third one, what is racism? According to D'Angelo, what is racism? Quote, when a racial group's collective prejudice is backed by the power of legal authority and institutional control, it is transformed into racism, end quote. So for, for D'Angelo and, and the definition of racism, again, it's not small acts of hatred. It is a group's collective prejudice backed by the power of legal authority and institutional control. Racism so large. Another way she says it is racism, quote, functions independently from the intentions or self-images of individual actors, end quote. So racism is so much larger than a moment or an act. It is an entire system. I love this quote from a professor at Wesleyan that she provides, quote, racism is a structure, not an event. Wow. Racism is a structure, not an event. This is deeply embedded in our society through economics, schools, textbooks, politics, movies, advertising, holidays, languages, etc. You know, and according to D'Angelo, which is interesting, people of color can be prejudiced and can discriminate against white people, but they can't be racist because, quote, they lack the social and institutional power that transforms their prejudice and discrimination into racism. So in other words, whites and people of color, we can't help but be prejudiced. Whites and people of color, we can't help but discriminate. But whites can turn this into racism because of the larger societal structure, whereas people of color cannot. You know, this just, this was just tough for me. This was tough for me. Um, in a lot of my thinking, I used, to, I used to think, okay, we talk about racism, but really we should talk more about prejudice because it's all the prejudice that leads to the racism. And I didn't think about the word discriminate as much. Um, I definitely thought of racism as discrete acts, discrete bad acts. I didn't understand I understood that there was a larger system. I still don't understand the system to its entirely, hence the need to continue to grow. But I didn't understand that racism itself was 
the larger system. I thought that prejudiced thoughts led to racist acts and lots of these added together to sort of lead to white privilege and the overall system leaning in the white direction. So this was really interesting for me to learn that we can't avoid being prejudiced. We can't even avoid discriminating generally, no matter how hard we try. Obviously, there are some people that discriminate all the time or are very prejudiced. And there are some that are very in tune with this and are only prejudiced in certain moments and only discriminatory in certain moments. And again, that can be white people or people of color. But man, to start to see racism in this larger light really gave me a better perspective and a better understanding of what's happening in America. So she gives a great metaphor. It's She called it, I think, like the birdcage metaphor. She said, picture yourself looking at a birdcage. And if you put your face all the way up to it and you look in, you don't even see the bars holding the bird in because your eyes get right up next to it and the bars are so skinny that it's like you can't see them. You can't see them, right? But then if you keep your face up against it but look to the left or look to the right, the way the bars are set, you'll see just one bar. And you'll think, man, why doesn't the bird just fly out? There's just this one bar. But then when you step back, you finally see all of the bars and you realize just how systematically and interlocking these barriers are for the bird. And that's racism. That's our society. It's it's if you look at if you get really close, you might not even see it. If you look to your left, you might see just a little bit of it. But if you finally start to understand it and you can truly step back, you see all the bars and you see how interlocking they are and you see how hard it's going to be to break down that system. This is so important. Ready? Quote, individuals may be against racism, but they will still benefit from a society that privileges whites. I'm sorry. They will still benefit from a system that privileges whites as a group. End quote. I'll do it again. Individuals may be against racism, but they will still benefit from a system that privileges whites as a group. Well, that's me. If I'm going to be reflective, that's me. I am against racism. I am against discrimination. I am against prejudice. I feel that in many ways I always have been. But I have still benefited from the system that privileges me and my whiteness. And you know what? Racism doesn't just hurt people of color. It's the system is so ingrained that it doesn't just push down people of color. It works in both directions. It pushes down people of color and elevates white people. So much so that like whiteness sort of becomes the norm. Whiteness is defined as the norm and everything else is a deviation from the norm. So everything other than white is sort of abnormal. And white is normal. And man, I hadn't really seen it that deeply. I just hadn't seen it that deeply. You know, and D'Angelo makes some good points. Like when people speak out against Black History Month or Women's History Month, they're not realizing that in our society, white history is the norm for history. That's why we need something that focuses us more outside of white history into these other worlds, Black History Month, Women's History Month. And there's, you know, and eventually, ideally we won't need that, but we will need it as long as whiteness is the norm. We will need to have ways to acknowledge others. 
You know, white people have a hard time understanding the benefits of their whiteness. To even have to consider our whiteness leads to white fragility. So that brings us to white supremacy. And talk about the worst two words in the language, right? D'Angelo pushes us here too. She says white supremacy is not a single event of hatred. She says it is much more pervasive than just white nationalist events. It is a quote, it is quote, an overarching political, economic, and social system of domination, end quote. White supremacy is more than the belief that whites are better than people of color. Quote, it is the deeper premise that supports this idea. It's always been so easy for me personally to put white supremacy like way out there. Like I can't even fathom that, you know, that's way over there or way far away. I can't even fathom it. And D'Angelo says, no, white supremacy is not just a feeling that whites are better. It's a system built to uphold whites being better and not a system of true equality. So she gives some incredible stats to back this up. I'll go through them as quick as I can. But she's referring to the 2016-2017, which is only three years ago. And this is where she's talking about our system is one of white supremacy. All right? Here we go. In 2016-2017, the 10 richest Americans were all white. The U.S. Congress was 90% white. The U.S. governors were 96% white. The top military advisors were 100% white. The U.S. presidential cabinet was 91% white. The people who decided which TV shows we see were 93% white. The people who decided which books we read were 90% white. The people who decided which news was covered were 85% white. People who decided which music were produced, 95% white. In 2016-17, the people who directed the top 100 grossing films of all time were 95% white. Teachers were 82% white. Full-time college professors were 84% white. Owners of NFL teams were 97% white. Here's her quote. These numbers represent power and control by a racial group that is in the position to disseminate and protect its own self-image, worldview, and interests across the entire society. Huge quote. That is a huge quote. I'm going to say it again. These numbers represent power and control by a racial group that is in the position to disseminate and protect its own self-image, worldview, and interests across the entire society. So she says that this white supremacist society leads to what she calls white framing. All right, And what she means is that because whites are so in control, everything is framed through a white lens. So let's give some examples. Uh, like she said, quote, whites circulate and reinforce racial messages that position whites as superior. There's, Im end quote, there's images, stories, there's omissions, there's silences, etc. Uh, this feeling of whites being superior is so internalized that it's never even challenged. It's not even noticed by most white people. And she says, just think about so many Disney movies, so many music videos, uh, the, the way we depict Chinese food, Aunt Jemima's syrup, Uncle Ben's rice, the Taco Bell Chihuahua, Columbus Day, the donkey from Shrek. All of these things are, are done through white framing. They make not white as other and not as good or not as quote unquote normal. That is white framing. What else is white framing? Well, 
parents start to do white framing. You know, did your parents tell you that race didn't matter and everyone was equal? You know, yes. Yes, mine did for sure. But then we have to push farther. Well, did they have any friends of color or many friends of color? Did people of color live in our neighborhood? If not, were we encouraged to visit other neighborhoods, meet other people, etc.? And that's white framing. You know, there's a lot of people that will say everyone is created equal. We should see everyone the same. But then if they go through a week in their child's lives, how many not white people do they interact with, right? So it's, it's that old adage of, you know, do you put your money where your mouth is. If, you, if, if this is how you feel, then build a life that demonstrates it. Don't just talk about it from afar. Don't be a tourist like I was talking about. Don't just be a tourist in this stuff. Don't just drop in, talk, think, and go back. You know, really live it. Um, and I'll get real personal here. For me, I'll never forget one thing my parents did, uh, which was good on this one, was I went to um, a city public schools through eighth grade. And I grew up happily so in very, very diverse learning environments. And then I went on school choice to a very affluent suburb for high school. And when that decision was made for many different reasons for me to do that, one of the things my parents did immediately was put me in a club at in the city at my local boys and girls club called the Keystone Club, which is a national society for building youth leadership. And they put me in this club and I was the only white kid in the entire club. So... I'll always respect my parents for that move. Like, okay, we, we're okay with you going to the suburban district for school, but we're not okay with you suddenly living only in that world. And so um, I was real interesting moved by them, and I understand it better, and I give them a ton of credit and a ton of respect um, based off this reading because I think it was a really important move for them to really... They always told me everyone was create, created equal. They themselves... We're, we're pretty good, at least, at having a diverse set of friends and network and colleagues. Uh, but once they made a big change for me to put me into a much more white place, they also made sure that they made another change and, and, and reminded me and reminded all of us of the dedication to diversity. Uh, another thing that's white framing is, is how the larger society talks about good schools. You know, how segregated are our schools? How segregated were your schools growing up? Uh, when did we first have a teacher of color? You know, um, I'm lucky. My kindergarten teacher was a black woman. And I'll never forget her, Mrs. Childs. She was amazing. Uh, and But I might that might be different. I might be one of the lucky ones who early on was blessed with that. Um, and how about neighborhoods, white framing? How do we talk about neighborhoods? Did, did, do you live in a safe neighborhood? If you do, great. But how do you talk about other neighborhoods? You know, and is, if your neighborhood's good and safe and clean, how do you talk about other ones? Did you, do you refer to them as crime-ridden? Or do you use some of those, there's, you know, code words have started developing, like urban uh, is often a code word. It's like a, 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 an accepted way to really say people of color, but we, you know, we've sort of come up with this code that doesn't sound that, you know, so if you live in a safe neighborhood, how do you talk about other neighborhoods? Because if you just talk, if we just talk about them as, oh, there's so much crime and there's, it's scary to drive through that neighborhood, 
you know, that's, that's white framing. That's white framing, according to D'Angelo. Uh, because there's so much more to those neighborhoods than that. So all of these things are the way, are a way that our, our white supremacist society leads to white framing. And this is all part of our socialization. So the last example from this chapter, which I loved, was D'Angelo gives an example from a grocery store. And it just was so, so telling. Uh, she says, a white mother is going through a grocery store with her, her young white child sitting up in the, in the cart. And a black man is in the aisle. And the, the child says, mommy, that man's skin is black. And the mom immediately shushes her child. Shh, shh, don't say that. Don't say that. Be, be polite. All right? And, you know, many of us right away would say, well, what's wrong with that? The mom's teaching the child to be polite, right? And, but D'Angelo says, no, no, that, that's not polite. You know, like, what if that child had said, mommy, mommy, that man is strong. Would we have shushed the child? Probably not. We probably would have giggled. We probably would have looked at the man, smiled, you know, probably had a quick moment that was kind of funny. But because our child said that man is black, we, we shush the child. We say that's not polite. Calling that man, pointing out that that man is black is not polite. And that's such so different. And, and you know, I'm not, I, I, I probably would have failed this one. I probably would have failed this one if this happens. But that's why we're growing, right? That's why we're that's why you're listening still. And that's why I'm thinking and that's why we read these books, right? Because we learn the mistakes we're making. So, D'Angelo argues that that mom made two mistakes in that moment. Number 1, she taught her child that it's taboo to talk about race. Shh, don't talk about race. Don't talk about race. And number 2, she taught her child that it's not that, she sh that the child shouldn't point out undesirable aspects of strangers. Shh, be polite. It's not polite to say that man is black. Hmm, how crazy is that? I, I know I would have failed that if one of my daughters said that when they were young. I would have been like, no, don't, you shouldn't say that. And in turn, I would have told them, pointing out that they're black is not a good thing because being black is not a good thing. That's the deeper message. And number two, I would have said it's not good. We don't talk about race. We don't talk about race. And that's the problem in our society is we socialize children and then all of us grow up from children to become adults and we don't know how to talk about race. And we don't realize that people of color or black people have been painted as the, the opposite of the norm or the, or the different from the norm. So man, Everything in this chapter just demonstrated how pervasive and embedded and structural the many different aspects of racism are in our society. All right, so from the intro up to chapter two, what were the big takeaways for me? For me, I got four of them. Number one, I must always acknowledge my whiteness and strive to understand what it means. All right, so just as my black friends understand their blackness and what it means to their experience of life, I need to do the same with my whiteness. I can't see race as other. I have a race. I am white. And that means something to every day of my life. And I'm going to be honest, seeing it this way can actually be painful. But you know what black people are thinking right now? We don't care that it's painful. We need you to see yourself as white. We need you to see 
and this at least I should say this is what I think, we need you to see the privileges you've, not just that you've had, that you always have. It's not, it's not like I've had these discrete privileges along the way. I always have the privilege of being white and being white is part of who I am in the larger society. So I must always acknowledge my whiteness and strive to understand what it means. Number two, I want to notice my own white fragility. I want to get better at this. Now that I'm understanding what white fragility is, when I want to be able to just see when my socialization in a white dominated society is causing me to be defensive or aggressive or ignorant of my own whiteness. You know, remember, racism is unavoidable. White fragility is, is unavoidable. I need to see it. I need to stop it. I need to know when it's happening. And sometimes it's going to mean I need to speak up more. And sometimes it's going to mean I speak up less and listen more. But either way, I need to see my white fragility. And even though it's going to make me feel some pain, again, that pain is good. That's the discomfort that white people need to truly get better. Number three. I must speak out, especially, especially for me, against racist, racist microaggressions. We can't be quiet anymore. Jalen Brown, this past weekend, when he went and did uh, a march down in Atlanta, one of my favorite basketball players on the Celtics, Jalen Brown, had a, a great quote. I'm going to put it here. Quote, being a bystander is no longer acceptable. If you and your friends are around or are witness to cultural biases, microaggressions, subtle acts of racism, actual racism, etc., and you don't speak up on it or do something about it, you are part of the problem. We're past the point where if it's not in your governance space, so you have nothing where where if it's not in your governance space, you have nothing to do with it. If you don't speak up on these issues, you are just as bad. And that's a tough one for us as white people because we've sort, if we don't understand our whiteness and we don't understand our white fragility and we continue to see racism as discrete acts only, we can kind of ignore it and just say, that ain't us. We're not that way. Let's continue. That can't be. I need to understand racism is a structure. It's an iceberg. And as white people, we must chip away at this iceberg any chance we get. We have to chip away at it any chance we get. So I need to be alert. I need to be aware. I need to identify my bias. I need to identify discrimination or identify others' bias or others' discrimination and call it out. We must speak out, especially against racist microaggressions. And number four from these first few sections is I need to continue to strive to have a diverse network. You know, Part of what D'Angelo says is don't just say all people are created equal. Be around all sorts of people. Have relationships with all different pe people of all different colors and cultures and backgrounds. Your friends, your colleagues, the environments you put yourself in. You need to sort of practice what you preach. Again, race relations happen in interaction. And we can't be a tourist. We can't just dip into CNN, watch what's going on, and dip out and go back to our privileged lives. We need to build a life that has this at the epicenter of it, that has a dedication to diversity at the epicenter of it. So I have a personal story uh, which will help me close out here, but I have a 13-year-old daughter, and I yesterday, after a lot of my college friends and I have been talking a lot about how to deal with this time with our kids. 
um, I sat down with her to have a deeper conversation about what's going on. And I said, you know, what do you know about Ahmad Arbery? And she, she told me a lot. She told me a lot. And frankly, I, I had run 2.23 miles and my wife and my daughter had run 2.23 miles. And so we had had some conversations and she had clearly picked up a lot of what happened there and how gross it was. And, and then I asked her about George Floyd and what happened there. And again, she knew a lot about what happened. She knew a lot of the details. And I'll be honest, it, those two questions and her answers made me proud of her. And they made me sort of just proud of the dialogue that I must be having around her because, and my family and our friends must be having around her because it wasn't like we had sat down before to talk about these things. She had just picked stuff up, uh, be it on her phone. Uh, she's not on social media, so it wouldn't be from social media, but be it on her phone or more likely be it in sort of family and friend conversations. But when I asked her about what she thought about what happened in Central Park, she had no, she said, what do you mean? And... I thought like it was like a light bulb went on, went on because I thought, you know, in some ways as a father of a white daughter, this might be the most important conversation is I need to talk to her about the woman in Central Park and what happened and, and the, the just awfulness of what that woman did. And I, why do I need to talk to her about that? Because I need her to be on alert. She's a white woman. She needs to be on alert. She needs to be on alert for her own privileges, her own whiteness, her own prejudices. You know, all this stuff I'm saying I want to do, she needs to start to do it at 13. Because the younger we teach white kids and white young adults to do this, the, the better, the better. Because we'll chip away at that larger iceberg of racism. So that is the conversation I had. I told her what happened in Central Park. I told her why it happens. You know, the, the larger societal structure that got that woman to react the way she did. And she asked some questions. We talked some more. And it was a good conversation. And I realized that that was an important conversation as a father for me to have. And that's, you know, those are the kind of conversations we all need to be having. So to wrap it up, the four things based on the first few sections of white fragility. Number one, I need to acknowledge and understand my whiteness. Number two, I need to notice and monitor my own white fragility. Number three, I need to speak out and speak up against any racism I see. And number four, I need to build a diverse network around me. I want to thank you so much for listening to this. I want you to I want to ask you check out Leading in a New Frontier NPT our YouTube series about how to lead during this time in schools. Check out 3 with Pete, uh, great YouTube channel, uh, great YouTube production by Pete Gillen, Principal of the Year in Massachusetts and check us out at npteducation.com. I'll be back soon with part 2 on racism. But remember this is a deep dive. So I hope that this dialogue helps with your own personal reflection, even if only a little bit, even if only a little bit. I want to give a huge thank you to Robin D'Angelo for writing this incredible book. I want to thanks, give a thank you to all my inspirational friends and my family members. And I also want to give a huge thank you to everyone out there speaking and listening, not just now, but always. Uh, we got a lot of work to do. And we need a lot of conversations like this one and a lot of deep dives to get there. But let's hope 
that this gets started at a better pace than it has been in history. So thank you for joining me here on the Teacher's Cup of Coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah.